0: Hello and welcome to Life at the School, episode 61. my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Tanea HIBLER Tanea is a biology and environmental science teacher at Brophy College Preparatory in Phoenix, Arizona. Before 2015, Tanea taught internationally at the Wells International School in Bangkok, Thailand, and Concordia International School in Shanghai. Back in 2012, Tanea was a member of the Jason Project Teacher. Argonaut program, on which she went on an expedition and explored the waters of the Black Aegean and Mediterranean seas off the coasts of Turkey and Cyprus. More recently, she's been involved in the American Modeling Teachers Association, and she has run biology teacher workshops. Today, I earned a Bachelor's of Science in biology and California State University East Bay sorry, from California State University, East Bay, a Master's of Education from ASU and a Master's of Science in Teaching Earth Science from Wright State University. Welcome, Tanea.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Nice to, nice to talk to you. Now, you're probably all nice and warm out in uh, Phoenix. Um, <laughs> last, last time we were talking to each other, we had a, a brief chat after one of our workshops in San Diego. Um, it was very nice and warm in San Diego. It's been, it's been freezing in the Northeast <laughs> this last week.
1: It, it's, def, it's definitely not freezing. There's not a cloud in the sky. And I do have a scarf around my neck, but I get cold easily, but it's sunny, and I'm sitting outside in front of Starbucks right now.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it is it, it is the nice thing about being the weather down there, but um, I would, I don't know. I, I like my Northeast. I like my Northeast cold. Um, <laughs> I wish it was like, this is a weird thing to say, but I kind of wish it was like 45 to 50 degrees like all the time. That would be like, perfect. oh, wow, that, that would be like perfect. If I could get like 50 degree weather all year round, I would take that. Um, that's like the perfect temperature. Uh, but it's it's been like 20s. I think when I went out and ran on uh, Thanksgiving morning, it was uh, 17 degrees out when I, when I left the house to go on my run. Wow. So, so yeah, it's been uh, awfully cold. But uh, I'm i am happy that you got to you could carve out some time here. This is Thanksgiving weekend, even though this episode is going to come out in mid-December. Um, so thanks again for joining me. No problem. All right. So let's get to the question I like to start with, everybody. Um, so how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom?
1: Well, I didn't decide early on. Like, I didn't know I was going to be a teacher. My father was an English teacher at a community college. And I think I was I, just avoiding teaching altogether.
0: <laughs> I um,
1: initially, after, well, during college, I wanted to uh, go to medical school. Mm-hmm. and I got on the waiting list for UCLA, and then I continued to pursue it, and I, I did get into a medical school, but it was an international medical school, uh, uh, in Kagesby International School. It was in England. Mm. At that point, I was like, I'm so done with school. I don't want to go like across the water and then decide that I'm cold and unhappy and then <laughs> drop out. So I, my mother was at the dentist one day, and I said to her, uh, do, you know, what would you think if I became a flight attendant? And she said, do whatever you want to do with your life. And I said, are you serious? And she said, yes. So I ran across the street and I went to a payphone. There were no cell phones back then. <laughs> and um, I called up the job that I had um, accepted at Planned Parenthood. And I told them I was not accepting the job. And then I went and I uh, became a flight attendant. <laughs> so, And I was a flight attendant with American Airlines for about, Uh, Three and a half years, the whole 9-11 thing happened, and my mother-in-law was sick, and so I I quit being a flight attendant because it got too challenging uh, with always being gone from home. So I took a job, like an actual job job at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and they (laughs) just about drove me crazy, and then I took a different job at AutoZone, And they drove me crazy even more. And I decided I need to go back to my roots and what makes me happy. So um, I decided to go back to school and get my master's in education. And then I fell into the classroom from there.
0: All right. You started the classic path of I was going to go to medical school, but that ended up biology <laughs> teacher. But you took a hard left turn there of flight yeah. <laughs> <blood> attendant <laughs> working at this car place, this car place uh, before getting it. So I, I am curious, like, all right, what what was going on in the background? Yeah, you have these jobs that are not they're not fulfilling you. Um, but you definitely went to a master's of education program. So were there things going on? That led to thinking, all right, not medicine, not other forms of biology, but in fact the classroom. What was there? Was there anything in there, or was it this this thing that you, some this small inkling that was just in the back of your mind?
1: I just at that point I had bills, like I, I had, like I said, my mother. I had I was married. My mother in law was sick, and my father had cancer at the time. And um, so I I had a we I had a house, and I was trying to take care of everybody. Mm. So not working, like just stopping and um, going to school for four or five or six years was not an option for me. And there was um, some new programs that had come out in Arizona, where it was like a fast track to becoming basically um, a teacher. And so I I did one of those programs.
0: Yeah, so it was a match of, you know, your skill set and something that you could practically jump into with the education background and your skill set that you already had, you could get a pretty fast pathway.
1: Yeah, and I I still love science, so yeah, it just it made sense.
0: All right, so um, that is not an you know that's not unusual that you you take this path to, to be, get in the classroom, but um, unusual that you manage to stick it out and you're here. You, it is many years later, and you're still in the classroom. Um, so clearly, you you got a hook. Um, and one of the things that I find fascinating, especially from your earlier story of you didn't want to fly across the sea to go pursue medical school, uh, you did choose to fly across the sea to teach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so, so one, like you got into the classroom, you're working in a school, and then all of a sudden you decide to teach internationally. So what was involved with the decision-making process to go and become a teacher in international schools?
1: Okay, so I would say... Well, to be honest with you, there was a public school just about drove me crazy as Mm -hmm. much as Enterprise and AutoZone did. (laughs) And I I was told no, like, you know, at the beginning of the school year where they have these these motivational speakers come in, they try to get you excited, and I would get excited quite easily. But then when I would actually try to implement something like in my classroom or at the school, my principal will be like, no, what are you thinking? You can't do that. And I, I mean, I was told no, almost about everything that I did. And I'm like, here I am a passionate teacher. I'm excited. I'm willing to stay late. I'm willing to come on the weekends. I'll do like trips with the kids. I'm trying to start recycling programs. Like that's the kind of teacher that, you know, I think that schools want, but yet they, the school didn't do anything to try to, um, make me feel appreciated or, um, like they it just seemed like they didn't care. And then on top of that, there was a, like a transition going on. So there were a lot of students at my school that were uh, like maybe students that had IEPs or students that used to be in self-contained classrooms. And they were putting all those students in my classroom. Um, so I had students that couldn't like, they had zero reading comprehension along with students that were probably like college track students all in the same class. And that, that was extremely challenging, mm-hmm. um, and and on top of that, my education for um, for teaching, I didn't feel like it prepared me for the realities of like <laughs> what was happening, um, in the classroom. So I at that point, I had a teacher next door who had gone off to the Philippines, and she came back and she's like, I accepted a job in the Philippines, and I was like, Oh my god, it's so amazing, and I was like, How did you do it? And so she told me the company that she used to get the job, and I at that point, I felt like. I had nothing to lose. My, my father had died from cancer. My mother-in-law was living in a nursing home and, you know, uh, I wasn't happy at my job. My husband wasn't happy at his job. So I asked my husband, Hey, what would you think about us? You know, just having an adventure. We only had uh, one son mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, I'll, will totally do it. And so I didn't know what was good. I didn't really think I was going to get a job, but when I started applying, um, and the school from Thailand emailed me back and they said, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you come. That's when I went on the computer. I was like, wait,
0: where's Thailand? <laughs> I
1: was like, I need to see where Thailand is. <laughs> so it just it just all fell together.
0: Wow. And uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I'm hearing this, you know, um, you definitely were hooked in educationally and loved sort of the, you know, I, I, I often say the trio of teaching is you have to love the kids, you got to love your subject and you got to love your craft, but it sounded like you were getting a lot of, um, maybe you weren't getting anything. You were getting a lack of support, uh, to make your job and to grow in your job in those three areas in your first school. Is that a fair, yeah, yeah, that's a fair statement.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, in my very first year I was, um, I was pregnant and, Mm -hmm. Like I said, my, my very first year was horrible. I was pregnant. My father died. It was just too much going on. But I, even after that, um, I was really excited to to be in the classroom, and I was willing to learn and do anything I had to do to make, um, you know, be successful and to get the kids excited. And I just, yeah, I, it just was a challenge from every direction. I even, like, um, I did a trip with students to Costa Rica. Yeah. And um, at that point, the... The principal, I had taken the, I did the trip, I organized the trip, and then the trip was the summer that I decided to leave the school. And she told the um, parents that, uh, well, I wouldn't be able to go on a trip with the students because I was quitting. And the parents had a fit, and they were like, no, this is the person that we want to go with our, our kids, and this is the person that we know. and. You know i had to go to the superintendent to get approval to go on that trip and then i had a um exchange student and my exchange student was from vietnam she was living with me for the year and um she was a senior but she couldn't graduate obviously from the school because mm-hmm. she had been going to school in vietnam previously but they wouldn't they wouldn't let her walk across the stage and just be part of the ceremony um the I had to go to the superintendent to get approval for that, you know, <laughs> so um, I got in trouble for trying to start a recycling program. You know, I was <laughs> reprimanded for that. I mean, it was just always something. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so you do make this switch over and you were, you had two separate um, schools you worked at internationally. How was, how was the fit internationally when you went over there? Was this you know, obviously not every school is perfect, but it, was it a better fit for you, you know, personally and professionally at these different schools?
1: Uh, in Thailand, well, when I, when I got off the airplane in Thailand, I remember, um, being in the van and driving down, uh, Sukhumvit road. And the first spot that came to my mind was, uh, oh, maybe we made a mistake. <laughs> uh, but once I got over the shock of. Uh, being there, the, the, the first school that I went to, it was a mix of kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were students from, there were Thai students, there were students that um, were American, there were Korean students, there were Indian students, so it was a mix of students, but everybody um, spoke English. And some students might have had, uh, maybe English was their second language, um, but I could communicate with the students and staff with no problem. And I was teaching middle school and high school, mm-hmm. and for the most part, kids were just really enthusiastic, and they were excited to learn, and they worked with you. So I, I felt like in, in terms of that, it was a fit, it was a match for me, mm-hmm. um, because I had kids that were really motivated to learn, and that's really what I was what I was looking for. Um, the only thing that didn't work out there was. The the first school that I went to was a for-profit school, oh. and so when you looked at some of the decisions that were being made in terms of, you know, are we putting back into the school and putting back into the students, sometimes I didn't understand um, why the owner made decisions that he made, and um, so that's why I ultimately decided to, uh, try to try to switch from that school to a non-profit school where our values would be more aligned, you
0: know? Okay. That's, that makes a lot of sense. And so then you went to, to Shanghai. Did you have an, were you already now, like, I totally get being in a very different setting. Did you go to Shanghai and was, was there an equal sort of adjustment period of like figuring out logistics uh, when you switched over to the second school?
1: Well, yeah, I didn't, like, I didn't speak any Chinese or anything. <laughs> so that wasn't a, that was an adjustment. And then at this time I was, um, this is when I was pregnant with my second baby. So when I moved to China, I was pregnant with my second baby. Um, I was teaching... Uh, some of the classes I was teaching were new, so that was an adjustment. Um, and just trying to get the get to know the, just the way that the school functioned. But that job ultimately was, like, the most amazing... It was the best job I ever had. So um, the people who were really the people I worked with were very excited to constantly push the boundaries and try to see like, what can we create? How can we like push ourselves to be better? People were extremely supportive. Um, either the coworkers or, uh, even people from different, like I could uh, collaborate with people from the middle school or the elementary school mm-hmm. on different projects. Um, there was always funding available. So if I said, Hey, I want to plan a science night. I think, um, well science week for the whole entire school, you know, preschool all the way to 12th grade. And I need $10,000 to do it. The answer from the principal was sure we'll, we'll make it happen. Uh-huh. And that's the, that's the kind of school it was. So it was amazing to work there.
0: Wow. All right. So I do have to ask, you know, why'd you come back? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I, I don't know i think i must be crazy <laughs> it was um i didn't want to come back it's tell you the truth because uh, my my um younger son like i said he was born there mm-hmm. and um, i had a everyone has an ie so like a caretaker who helps in their house and mm. i could afford to have someone like cook for me and help clean up with the, <laughs> you know in the house and then uh when my son got old she would take care of my son mm. and she just spoke chinese to him all day and then uh, when he got a little bit older, I wanted him to interact more. I put him in a Chinese daycare. And then my older son was going to my school so he could attend school for, he's like a, at a top-notch international school for free. And um, they had Chinese like once, uh, maybe like an hour a day um, there. Cause it was just basically an American curriculum. Um, and he would get like modeling jobs cause he'd walk down the street and they'd be like, Oh, like black people. Oh wow, we want <laughs> you to model for us um and you did international the high school did international um, trips every year so the whole school the whole high school would shut down for uh like a week and all the kids we'd we'd run 25 different trips all over china um at the same time so uh but my husband he wasn't a teacher so when we moved to thailand he wasn't a teacher he got a job teaching english in thailand um, and then when we moved to china he he bumped into some football people. So he started coaching a football team that was in China for like 14 and under kids. And then he was substitute teaching at my job. And he was like, oh, I I like this. Like he was really enjoying himself. And so he decided to get his master's degree through Grand Grand Canyon University. Mm -hmm. He got his master's degree online and then Grand Canyon University allowed him to do his student teaching at my school. And so everything was just was going really, really great. And, um, I don't know. I just assumed, because I was, I think I was loved at my school and he was loved by the school. Um, even though he had no teaching experience, I just assumed when it came time for him to apply for a job, that they were going to hire him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so my school did not hire him. And that was disappointing. And then um, after that, so he decided, well, I'll, I'll look, there are there's lots and lots of international schools and, um, so he started applying at other schools, like outside of, you know, in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he just had a really bad experience. Like um, people would say to him, oh, you're too black and you might scare the kids. Or, oh, oh we have to check with the board um, because you're black. and We don't know if they're going to approve for you to work here. And so it, um, it just became clear to me that. Like, if he was going to get the experience, like, if we wanted to be that international power couple who gets to work, you know, wherever together, that he was going to have to get some experience before Mm. someone was going to hire him. And so, oh,
0: go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, it's. I mean, you know, I I, I, like, it's heart-wrenching to hear this story, like, to hear that, you know... uh, hear how he was treated um not to suggest that you know in america you don't see the same thing happening um but i do appreciate the fact that you made this this is a larger family decision um to help establish you know both of your careers uh was to come back is that is that fair
1: yes yeah definitely fair
0: and so, like, has the adjustment been, I, I know I've, I've uh, you know, I do my internet stalking, so I know quite a bit about you now at this point, uh, but I, <laughs> I know he's on the sidelines now and he's coaching there. Has he been able to, has, has it worked out? You know, have you been able to come back and allow him to establish himself and start to get in the classroom? Oh, yeah, I mean,
1: once he, I, once he applied for, like, once he decided to apply for a job in the U.S., he was offered a whole bunch of jobs in the U.S. So it was mm. like, oh, yeah, we want you to come. Great. So, like, he, he likes, he loves the school that he's at now. Uh, but, you know, we were separate. Like, he, I was in China for nine months and he was in the US. Oh, and that is what drove us crazy. Yeah. And he would fly back every break he had, like fall break, Christmas break, spring break. And then, um, but every time he left, I would cry and the kids would cry and everybody would just be really sad. And then we, we were having all these arguments on the phone every time we got on the phone with each other. And then you know it's like a 15-hour time difference, which <laughs> doesn't help anything at all. Yeah. Um. So I I just decided I said okay well I I can be married or I can have my dream job.
0: Hmm. And so
1: I said I, I think I'm gonna go back. And so I didn't I didn't know if I would get a job that I wanted, but I I um, put in a couple applications. And then during my spring break, I flew back. I told my husband, I said, if I get a job, I'll come back, okay? And I wasn't sure I would get a job that I liked. And I, I told him, I'm not going to just go to any school, okay? And um, luckily, it worked out. I was offered a bunch of jobs. And um, I was like, I can't believe this. So I accepted the job at Brophy And that's where I am now. And that's been an adjustment. That's been a, a, a really tough adjustment for me.
0: Yeah, the, the I, I mean, the cultural shift of different types of schools is always a very big challenge. Um, but wow, it's a it's a very interesting uh, career path in terms of different schools early on. Definitely something that's uh, unique compared to the other teachers I've talked to. And I've talked to teachers who've who've gone international and people who've stayed home. But um, yeah, I think uh, I, I can't imagine being spending nine months away from my wife um, and kids uh, and them 15 hours away, like that's, I I can't imagine that. So, um, I very much appreciate the decision to, um, to get back together (laughs) in the same space and have your teaching jobs. So, wow. The
1: the good thing is my, I did find a, for my son that was born in China, I found a bilingual, uh, it's a public school, uh, here in Arizona, but it's bilingual. So half the days in English and half the days in Chinese. So I feel like at least, I was able to like, I'm able to give that to him. So all the Chinese he heard growing up, it's somewhere in his brain and it's being reactivated now. And he's, I can't even help him with his homework. So <laughs> he's, he's learning something. Wow. And then my older son is, um, you know, he's in, he's in, he's in the public school where my, my husband, um, the district where my husband teaches. And uh, he, this is the first year where he's at a school where neither one of us works. So that, that was like, oh, my God, he's not at a school with us anymore. <laughs> um, but he's doing fine. We, we applied for one of those, you know, special programs, like a school within a school. So he's with a good group of kids, and he's doing good. And my school, my school's an all-boys Catholic school. Yeah. Um, and every school that I've worked at has, I've typically, I've been like one of the only black females that work there or the only black female that works there sometimes the only black person that works there um but so this has been an adjustment uh i i don't know like when i came back in 2015 it was the year when all this all these um police shootings were happening Mm. you know and black people were all these shootings on our killings of black people on videotape and so my school was um addressing some of those issues and they were they were having conversations about race and they've been like pushing to become more diverse, but my schools are predominantly like historically it's been a school for uh, predominantly white males. And so, um, I feel that, yeah. you know, when I'm, when I'm there, but there is a, you know, there is a push to, to really uh, make it more diverse and make it, um, as inclusive as it can be for everybody who does attend the school. And so I have been able to like, you know, be a part of the equity and inclusion committee and, um, I'm part of the Brophy culture project where kids are on campus who are trying to you know, redefine and shape the culture of the school, and so and I did, I, I traveled with a student from Brophy to China and mm-hmm. he's actually attending school at um, NYU Shanghai right now oh. so I, I feel like I've had um, a lot of positive um, impact, but I'm from California liberal Cal, Berkeley Cal- <laughs> berserkly California, and so like where I think the school should be and where they actually are, I'm kind of like, come on, come on, we need to push more. <laughs> you guys are going slow, so sometimes I'm very impatient, and I'm just like, oh, I feel like I'm in this, uh, maybe like I've gone back, you know, into the past, uh, <laughs> and I, want to, I want to like go 30 years into the future. So sometimes I feel a little bit, um, like people maybe can't relate to my feelings or my experiences, but I just deal with it, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you said Berkeley because the last person I talked to was uh, Glenn Wilkenfeld, who teaches at Berkeley High. Um, <laughs>
1: oh, I, I went to school there for a while. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I don't think he got, he was teaching there. You were you would have been out of school by the time he got the job there, but uh, it just, oh, okay. th- that literally is the last, you know, episode 60 is with Glenn, so it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's I didn't realize my Berkeley connection, um, and we brought up this, you know, that he was talking about the, uh, you know, the the progressive attitude of the, the town and the staff. And, um, you know, he was talking about the diversity of the school. Um, and then also the achievement gap issues that happen at Berkeley high school in spite of the diversity. I could tell you all about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know, cause I grew up also in a college town, but I grew up in a t- college town mm-hmm. in Massachusetts where you know, it just, I, it's not a super diverse, state i mean massachusetts in terms of it's very economically divided um you know if, if you're if you're in a city um you will find diversity and when you leave the cities even the college town where i went to it's just a less diverse place um i i teach in a very wealthy suburb outside of boston and i often say you know i teach wealthy kids from all over the world um you know because we're about 40 percent asian but they're mm. you know chinese and indian uh, but they're it's an affluent grouping that I teach. Um, and right. and because of the way schools are funded and the way um, housing is set up, it, you just don't find a lot of places where you have um, a lot of diversity in any of the public squares anymore. Um, and not that maybe yeah, you ever did.
1: <laughs> no, that's just like, okay. So Berkeley, Berkeley was diverse, right? But it was always like, we lived in Albany. My, my father was getting his PhD, so we grew up in the family housing for UC Berkeley, which was in Albany. And then we moved to Berkeley. Um, so we switched over to Berkeley High School after being in the Albany School District for a while. And when we got there, we just didn't feel welcome. Like, I don't even think they believed that we lived in Berkeley. Like, I remember one time the teacher showed up at our house and I was like, why, like, why are you at my house? I don't know. I think he was just trying to see if we really lived in Berkeley. Like, cause there was like, you know, a lot of kids would come in from like Oakland. I think they were trying to control huh. the number of kids coming in from Oakland and stuff like that. And when it came to like AP and honors classes, it was always like a fight to get in the class. My mom was like, Hey, my daughters should be in those classes. And then you have to push to get into those classes. And then once you're in there, depending on who your teacher was, you might be told, well, you're not going to do good in this class or, you know, it was just like, that's why I I didn't graduate from Berkeley high school. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't take the, um, the environment. And if you were like a nerdy, like nice kid and you didn't get into trouble and you weren't partying and stuff, then like, you know, then you weren't, you had bullies that you had to deal with as well. So Mm. it was just, um, rough from all angles. And so I, I wanted independent study and Berkeley High wouldn't give me independent studies, so I said, "Okay, we'll forget you guys." I found a school that would, and then my senior year, I was able to do independent study and then um, take classes at the community college, and that just worked out much better for me.
0: Well, wow. it's you know, we we and this brings back the you know several of the conversations that happened at NABT and um, and I think sort of highlighting your work at Brophy of being a person who's in the room talking about diversity is important Um, you're going to bring experiences and perspective that um, you know frankly people who look like me never could have Um, you know as much as I'm grimacing at these stories and would say oh I would never personally do that I still also can't bring that history and story and experience into that conversation to improve you know the situation for students
1: what I think matters in terms of your What you do bring is you bring, I think there's a there are a lot of teachers at NABT uh, conference that are just super passionate, and they're excited, and they want to have a positive impact on their students, and so they're willing to say, okay, what can I do, and how should I do it? Um, you know, how can I shape the future of schools, and I think that's half the battle, so this, just the willingness to be open and learn, and a lot of people aren't... Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people are not willing to push themselves outside of their comfort zone and say, hey, how can I you know, change what I'm doing in my classroom to have a positive impact on students in a way I never thought of before?
0: Yeah, I guess may, this is maybe a good, a good time to ask because you actually raised a question that um, was a, a, the kind of thing I think about when we were talking um, in, I guess it was called the Symposium for AP, and you asked the College Board folks, like, How are you, you know, there was a lot of discussion about raising equity and diversity access for students. And you asked, well, how do we get more diversity on the other side of the classroom? How do we raise the diversity of the teachers of AP Biology? And to me, it didn't seem like that had ever been thought of. Um, Was that true? Yeah,
1: (laughs) it, it seemed like people were like, like a light bulb had went off in the room and people were like, oh, and... And maybe that's why diversity is so important because you're not going to even know what if you don't have different types of people with different kinds of experiences you're not going to know that hey there's 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 black women who are who are ap biology teachers but every time they go somewhere they're the only they're the only one and you know there's there's black students who maybe don't see teachers that look like themselves or even you know, Asian students or even, you know, Mexican, enough Mexican students who are seeing teachers that look like them or And then when it comes to black males, it's even, the numbers are even lower. Mm. I, um, I don't even want to know what the numbers are actually, (laughs) but I know it's low. And, uh, so I, I just, I know from my experiences that the teachers in public schools who get the, the AP classes, they tend to have smaller classes and they tend to have students who are really focused. So once they get those classes, they're usually not willing to budge in terms of um, like giving access to those classes to other people. It's all usually about seniority. Uh, so I didn't ever feel like going into a school, I was going to ever be able to teach the honors and AP classes. I felt like I was given the classes that nobody else wanted. Hmm. Uh, and. At Brophy, someone retired, and so I lucked up, and that's how I got the, the AP Bio class. But I don't know, like, if someone hadn't have retired, I probably would never have had a chance to get that class.
0: Well, you know, I, you, when you bring that up, that, to me, there's two ways of of people getting access to it. Yeah, either the person who runs it retires, or the program grows, and so therefore they need to bring new people in. Um, those seem right. to be the two avenues to get it. So you're right. I mean, I I started teaching the AP. Um, you know, I had been at my school for a dozen years um, uh-huh. when the program grew to the point where they needed a second teacher. Um, and right. the person who took over the course, we have the same amount of teaching experience. He started at my school. I ta- started a different school and came in four years later. But he took that class over when our previous AP teacher retired. You know we were both like six, seven years into teaching. I think we were about seven years into teaching when that person retired. And then, right. and then, you know, another, you know, eight, Years later, the program grew to the point where they needed a second teacher, and that's when I became it. But the truth is, I look around, and is there anybody else who's going to get opportunities to teach that the AP Biology? Um, I have no desires to give the AP Biology up now that I've got this, and I'm working on that curriculum now. Um, So I kind of see it from both sides. I see not having that access, but I also see the – like the need for diversity and access, um, in different schools. So I, I think that issue to me is much more complicated. Um, not that any of these other issues are complicated, but, um, I do think that in terms of a training standpoint, the college board is such a force that they, mm-hmm. they could, you know, now that this, this idea has been put in their head, which, you know, I'll be honest, I, when you, said it, I was like, that's a brilliant point. Um, I'm not a decision maker on that level. So maybe I would have thought of it before, but it's not something I had thought of, but at the same time, you know, does my student body look like the staff at my school? And the answer is no, we are not 40% Chinese and Indian, um, in our staff, even though that's what our student body is. So how do we make that? And even like, yeah,
1: I, it's, it's really, I don't know, but I think people have to at least be thinking about it or nothing, nothing will ever change. And even, um, when you think about, like, there's some schools where maybe all the students are black, but I didn't feel like those those teachers were represented at the conference, and maybe that's because of funding, mm. you know? Maybe they can't afford to go to AP conferences, or they can't afford to go to the NFTA or NAPT. I don't know. Like, I know my school, I just ask them to send me, and they send me. But what if, what if there are, you know, a bunch of teachers who are trying to improve their AP program and they're trying to get more students to take those courses, and then there's just no funding for them to go to these conferences. Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like when I look at who's there, but I don't I don't really know what, what it is.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> you've, you've definitely raised a lot of questions where I, I definitely, you know, I think hopefully when hearing this, um, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, you hear these points and hear these perspectives that are, I'm just going to only speak for myself, that are different from, you know, my personal experience it informs every interaction I have going forward. So uh, it's going to be one of those questions I have where it's like, are we providing access to both the students and the teachers? And I've always been um, maybe not always, but really over the last few years, been very focused on, you know, student access, student access, student access. but like, that's sort of where my focal point was, but now it's right. Access in general. Like how do we make access on both levels uh, a reality?
1: Well, that's so. why I'm kind of excited to be doing the, um, working with the AMTA, the Arizona Modeling Teacher Association.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because like I feel like as a black woman, if I'm if I'm standing up there and I'm teaching other teachers, I can show people, well first of all, we can do it, right? <laughs> like we have the ability to do it. And I'm hoping that I inspire like other black women to say, I can do it too, or or anybody, right? Yeah. I, I hope I can inspire anybody. And and then um, I'm I'm hoping a group of teachers will get together and talk about like what are things that we could be doing either you know regular bio class honors bio class or an ap bio class to really get the kids critically thinking um and get the kids doing science in the classroom so that's that's why i'm involved with amta because i feel like i can hopefully influence the direction of like science education like not on a large level but on a a small level right a small scale
0: Yeah. I mean, that could, that could have a large scale impact. I mean, it's that ripple uh, idea. So, I mean, I saw that you recently hosted a modeling and AP biology webinar. Um, Somehow you scheduled (laughs) that like the day after you got back from NABT, which we have to talk about scheduling (laughs) that you decided to do that. Um, But I also know that you co-led a two week long modeling workshop. So like, I, I mean, I could ask you, like, how did you do a one-hour webinar when you ran a two-week workshop instead? But I think more appropriately, is like, you started working with this AMTA grouping. How has that changed your approach in the classroom since you've been working with them for the last few years?
1: Well, like, when, when I first started teaching, like I said, I wasn't really prepared to be in the classroom with actual students. All the books I read about, like, you know, theory didn't help me, actually, when I got in the room with the kids. And so I... Initially I had taken a physical science um modeling course
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: I happened to be teaching a general science class and I had to teach a physical science class and so that worked out for me my my um you know my first few years of teaching and then um I kind of switched over into life sciences and and biology and the modeling there wasn't really materials for modeling in like environmental science or life sciences so I kind of was like oh I guess I can't use this anymore so I kind of just did whatever I thought would, you know, whatever worked. But then I found out, oh, there's this thing called biology modeling too. <laughs> and so when I found that, I just, I loved it because it makes the like the kids do all the work. Like the kids do all the work. They do all the, um, they collect all the data. They do all the labs and they interpret everything and they tell you what their thinking is. So you really have a, a better understanding of where you're, where your kids are at, like you know what misconceptions that they care, what they that they hold on to, and they can work through those misconceptions by um, working with each other in groups. They do a lot of whiteboarding, a lot of presenting, and um, so I like that style of teaching, of having the class be more student centered, and I, I just want to know how can I implement that in an AP Biology classroom. So, I'm doing the workshops because it helps me be a better teacher, mm-hmm. and then I'm trying to get teachers together who um, hopefully will discuss how we can do this in AP Biology. All
0: right, That's so, where I am right now. So let's break this down a little bit because the word modeling, I, I often joke that I, I had the word modeling in my head for like two years and I couldn't wrap my head around it because I, I realized that when people use the word model, different people have different perspectives so like you know my friend John Darko when he heard model he thought computer model so he learned to program and he programs all these computer models and then he even has his students build some computer models and then you talk to some teachers and um, you know you words the word model and what they're doing is they're pulling out Play-Doh and chalk markers and they're like right. it's like craft time as, uh, as uh, Paul Anderson sometimes says and then from, <laughs> from the lab standpoint for me when I think model I think model organism and so like, I want to represent, you know, cell respiration. So what, how could I use a living organism to model that? So um, are you checking all the boxes in this or what is, what does modeling look like to you in your classroom? um, And maybe in these workshops that you're helping teachers through?
1: I think it's just a conceptual model that helps students understand a particular concept. So Mm. it's something that they should be able to like draw or write on a whiteboard, mm-hmm. right? And the model, whatever model that they come up with, to like if it's a model for population growth, it could be a graph, it could be um, it could be a storyboard, um, depending on what you're talking about. It in physics, it's usually like a you know graphing it with mathematical equations, but not in biology. Um, but whatever it is that you're that the students are coming up with, that model that they create helps them to understand uh, whatever the topic is that you're discussing. And the students are like different students might come up with different conceptual models, but when the whole class gets together and they share and they ask questions of each other, you can usually get to a point where you come to a consensus and you say, okay, this is where we are as a class. So what one class produces might be slightly different than what another class produces but they're all building up to the same understanding. It just might be slightly different from period to period.
0: So when you use the word modeling, you're having the, this is like the mental schema that is in the kids' heads is coming out into a representation that they are sharing with the class. Yes, Yeah. definitely. And so the, the idea, and then the hopeful through the discussion and the iterative process of working with others, that they're going to then refine their model. They're going to be questioned, they're going to be challenged, they're going to be able to do that with others, and that model is going to change over time.
1: Yeah, definitely it should it should change. And, and we don't, you know, you're not going to always, you can't necessarily end every unit where they have a perfect understanding of everything, <laughs> but they definitely, where they walk in when they come into the class is a different place from where they are at the end of the unit. Uh, and then what what I like about it most is, um, you do have kids that push back and they're like, "Why aren't you teaching us anything?" <laughs> but a lot of the kids, even though they might be afraid because they're used to being lectured at and then memorizing, taking notes and memorizing, most of the kids say, "I love this class. like i love I love the class, and i I love what we're doing. and um and then some kids say, hey, i like I can see myself being, You know a scientist like kids that maybe you didn't think would ever say that before and that's why i like it
0: yeah i mean you definitely have to have a lot of um trust uh in the classroom and the the people around you and you also have to be a little vulnerable especially when like you realize that you don't have a great grasp of something um and it's early Mm -hmm. on and you're supposed to share what's in your mind and you you don't feel very confident in your understanding of something that's hard, uh, I think I was going to say for teenagers, but for for everybody uh, to do. That's that's a vulnerable space to be in. So.
1: Yeah, I think it's actually easier to teach the class to kids than it is to teachers. <laughs> <laughs> teachers, yeah, teachers are not good at being vulnerable.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like one of those things where, you know, you talk about asking, you know, a previous school where it wasn't a good mesh for you. Um, you were definitely willing to put yourself out there. So this is very much, you know, sort of your ethos of the classroom. You found your match in this approach. Uh, I think this is what you've always been as a teacher from what it sounded like for what you want to do year one, year two. Um, you're able to do that using this modeling approach.
1: Yeah. I, and I I have really supportive administrators. So they're, they're totally supporting me and they're already like pushing. I think the school's in a shift right now. They become more student centered. Mm-hmm. So um, but I, I, don't think all teachers are, are at a institution where they have the, the space to do that, unfortunately. Uh, so hopefully, you know, maybe we can even like get some administrators to come to some of the workshops so they can see the value in it. Yeah. But All right. it's been around for, I think it's been around for a while though.
0: All right. Well, when you want to plug future workshops, you make sure you let me know, and I'll uh, I'll plug them for you when you're getting ready for next summer. July, July
1: at uh, Brophy College Preparatory, we'll have our biology modeling workshop, July eighth, I think, to the nineteenth.
0: Oh, do you have Do you have a registration? Uh, you have, you have, if you have a registration website, uh, give it to me, and I'll put it in the show notes.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll have, I don't know if it's out yet, but I'll, when All I right. get it, I'll send it to you. When
0: you get it, I will. I'll definitely add it into to future show notes. And um, okay. I don't know if I'll make it to Arizona in July, but you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> a crazier thing. I've done crazier things, um, in terms of my workshop, uh, attendance. Uh, all right. So, uh, we got a little bit of time. I'm going to squeeze this one in. So I think we already sort of brought up a little bit, um, from nabt and it's only been a couple of weeks so um i know that you know you know we had the thanksgiving break and i was starting to reflect a little bit um you know is anything from the conference like stuck with you a few weeks out from the workshops uh was anything that like was really resonated with you or you know you're turning over in your head since you came back from san diego
1: well i i like the um hhmi sessions Mm -hmm. a lot yeah (laughs) um so I don't like going to a conference and then you put everything in your bag and then you never look at it again. <laughs> so as soon as I went back to my classroom, I was like, I'm doing that lesson with my kids. So I did one lesson. I tried it with them and it was, I thought it was really helpful in terms of like analyzing graphs. It was a the statistics, statistical analysis and uh, biology, okay. um, that session. So I use that right away. Uh, and I probably will use it earlier on next year, but just, um, Oh, and the, the session where, they talked about, uh, basically how students, um, whether race is biologically biological concept or not. And the gentleman was doing, he had, he was doing his research on how teachers present, um, different ideas, how that impacts like a student's thought process. And sometimes we are contributing to students having misconceptions about race. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's probably something I'm doing in my class. And so I, um, actually emailed my department head. And I said, as a department, I think we need to be tackling this since race is a issue, you know, something uh, that we've been discussing at my school for the last couple of years. I said, I, I don't want to do this alone. And hopefully you guys will be willing to like discuss this with me. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping we're going to follow up on that one.
0: Yeah, I, I'm hoping to get the follow up information from them, too. I was also in that workshop. And um, yeah, I actually had a moment Where I walked into another room, like literally two days after I got back from San Diego, and somebody was asking a question. And I heard the teacher's explanation, and I'm sure they're the same words that I used. And they were talking Mm -hmm. about, like, you know, they were talking from a population standpoint, but I could Mm -hmm. hear the language and how if you're a student and you don't perceive the discussion of, um, you know, sickle cell anemia having a higher incidence in certain populations—it it comes across like you're creating these racial differences um, associated with genes uh, that, like, they're right. rare genes that occur here, and therefore these these big differences between people of different races. Uh, I thought the the again, sort of talking about the modeling, the way they modeled out uh, the different ways uh, people perceive racial differences was was. Again, eye-opening and I want to get more of those questions and I want to hear more about, I want to read those papers that they put out because I I would like to, you know, reflect and then integrate those same questions into my teaching and find out, am I I not only not making things better, but am I making things worse um, moving forward? Yeah. So.
1: definitely I totally agree with you I feel the same way and I I'm a sickle cell carrier so I and I always tell this to my students and I'm like oh I'm probably really messing them up because yeah. me and my husband are sickle cell carriers and I always tell the kids that they're probably thinking oh yeah all those black people have sickle cell yeah <laughs> so.
0: well then you have to tell them that you have celiac like all the Irish people and then um <laughs> they'll get all messed up so <laughs> yeah they, they will <laughs> so I mean that's uh and I think that you know you were uh you know, you, you talked about that, you brought that up in, in one of the workshops about having celiac and and how people didn't believe you because, you know, you don't fit the the classic oh, grouping yeah. of it. So, um, yeah. And you know, I will say having my mother, uh, being uh, celiac as well, uh, I want to suggest that it has, um, just as much to do with sexism as racism. Um, so okay. just, to, just to make you feel better about it. Uh, because my mother was <laughs> undiagnosed, my mother's a nurse and she was undiagnosed with celiac for a really long time. Um, wow. and, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't until she sort of got the right match and came across the right person. And again, she's Irish. Like It's the land of celiacs, and uh, but this this was also a while ago before a lot of the information was out there. But you know, like she had confounding symptoms, like symptoms that just like didn't make any sense, and. And was starting to think like, you know, she was crazy, but like in medical, there was medical things going on. It's like, no, you're not crazy. Uh, but it took her a while to, to track that down. So um, it may be that, you know, just you know, they didn't believe you because you were a woman and not because you were black or maybe it's it, both it, of those it, things. Yeah,
1: that's, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought I was like, maybe I, I'm too stressed out. Maybe my job, like, you know, teaching is a stressful job. I was like, yeah. maybe I'm just causing too much stress and I need to like take a step back. Like, I wasn't sure. Yeah. So I really wasn't sure what was going on, but you know I'm like 14% Irish. I think God. I have to. I got to look up the numbers, but it's around there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I, I. But well, my Irish people are actually all Welsh. Somebody, my sister did the the genetics on <laughs> it. There's a there's a the, the working class folks that went back and forth. Uh, it's, it's, not, it, it's it's not so clean. Um, <laughs> all those uh, those lowly dock workers. That is where the the Irish stock I come from is. Uh, a group of people who were basically migrant lower class folks that went back and forth between the islands you know with the seasonal jobs so it was a lot of mixing up on that side of the family um they right. <laughs> they're their they their 23 and meek doesn't come out super clean it's like yeah you're from those islands okay. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think the 23andMe stuff is also I, I wanted to like I wrote like 10 questions about how, what is the implications of this for the 23andMe? Because I know that the 23andMe data is all based off a lot of the self-reporting information where they go to areas and they ask people from that area like who self-report as being long lineage from there. And that's how they make those markers of people from those areas. And there's some questionableness to that. Um, And there's people who've gotten results back from there where they're like, oh, you don't have any of this in your, in your background. And people are like, we're pretty sure we do. Um, And the companies are like, and also all the companies have different algorithms. So if you do ancestry and you do 23andMe and you do uh, what's the other one Helix or you do the different groups, their racial uh, or ethnic backgrounds are they don't match up because their their algorithms are slightly different. So a lot of fascinating stuff that comes up with that. So all right, so we've talked a lot about uh, sort of your past and sort of recent past. What are you looking forward to in the next couple of years in your classroom? Oh,
1: okay. Well, I'm looking forward to. This year this year I started the, um, using the, I, in my honors biology class, I'm using the new modeling um, biology curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to actually teaching the new biology curriculum. Last year when I taught the workshop, I was teaching the old curriculum. So that's really exciting for me. And then just figuring out what's going well and what's not going well and making the tweak, making all those tweaks and adjustments. That's what um, I'll be doing for honors bio. And then I'm really excited, like I said earlier, about the possibility of finding a group. I'm the only AP biology teacher at my school, so finding a group of teachers who want to talk about, you know, can AP bio be student-centered, and even if you're on a tight schedule, and how does that look, and can you use modeling in the AP biology classroom, Mm -hmm. um, that's really exciting for me, and I'm hoping, I'm I'm hoping that I can... um, increase the number we only have two sections of ap biology right now and i'm at a school with 1300 students oh, wow. so i'm hoping i can increase the number of students who are enrolling in ap bio and i'm not going to put pressure on myself and say that hey all my kids should have four and fives <laughs> i just like hopefully it all just this here yeah but um in the future you know if we could push the scores up um and see more for fours and fives that would be nice too
0: do you uh how many years you've been teaching ap
1: this is my first year i'm a baby
0: this is just your first year and you're tackling all this oh okay well, i was gonna say after yeah. next year next year you have to apply for the read um because oh yeah
1: i've, I've been told that yeah yeah
0: because you definitely will be able to um connect with other teachers and that's really how you build your ap network um Okay. And you can you can do it in local areas and that sort of thing. But um, I've met a lot of the AP teachers who are in my network from going to Kansas City. Even though you know they may teach, you know, five minutes from me, ten minutes down the road from me, um, you definitely connect a lot more with people by doing that. Um, and then you'll then you'll find a tribe of local modeling, you know, Arizona Phoenix-based teachers that you can really work on, you know, that the, teaching the way you want to teach.
1: I probably will have, uh, like this year I'm all booked up with, I'm teaching summer school and then I, I might be teach, doing, um, co-leading two of the biology
0: workshops, so, but maybe next summer I can do that. Yeah, definitely you have to get that get that on your uh, agenda. All right, so uh, before we get to questions for me and picks of the episode, uh, um, I'd like to know what are, what do you do when you're not teaching? We've talked you doing a lot of travel, um, but what do you do when you're not in the classroom?
1: Uh, I'm always in the classroom. What are you talking about? I live at school. Yeah. I have a couch in my uh, right there, like in the storage room between the two <laughs> rooms. I sleep there. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I'm I'm a mom and I have two kids and I, I okay so there's somehow I I end up tutoring and it's really <laughs> weird because um the student that I'm tutoring right now. I'm doing it because his mother says she really he really needs the help. I really didn't want to tutor, but I'm tutoring him in English. But, and I don't. That's what my that's what my father taught. My father taught English. I don't. It's like my least favorite subject. But like he's getting an A in the class, so he's doing great. So, I'm I'm helping him a lot. But I I just can't believe I'm tutoring English. But I I've, I I've tutor him in math and stuff as well. And I have once in a while tutored biology, but I usually don't have time to do that. Yeah. Um, I got to go to my kids. Like, I got to run them to their football practices or basketball practices. And <laughs> I got to try to um, squeeze in time to uh, volunteer in my kids' classrooms, which I, I do that usually a couple times a year. But, you know, on the weekends, uh, just being spending time with my dog. I got an American bulldog, and she's about 100 pounds, and she likes <laughs> to jump on me. And she gets upset when I leave her at home. So got to walk her a lot. And then my mother lives out in the middle of nowhere. It's in Dolan Springs, Arizona, between the Hoover Dam and um, uh, Kingman, Arizona. So I try to get out to see my mom every once in a while. That's like a three, three and a half, four hour drive to get to her house. But um, I bought some land out there. So we're trying to, me and my sisters are trying to get that land developed. And that's like a project and a half and then um, I'm looking into right now I'm really fascinated with uh, Polonia trees they're the fastest growing trees in the world and I want to see if I can possibly like get you know start growing some Polonia trees in my free time. (laughs) Well, I, I'm not crazy. I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: hopefully, I, I hopefully you will find some spare time because uh, it doesn't sound like you have any. <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
1: we're going to go to we're going to go to Las Vegas uh, for Christmas. And, you know, we go hiking and go to the movies. And even though it's cold, we'll probably jump in the hot tub or the pool at the at the resort. And if we're lucky, we'll drive up maybe somewhere up in Utah and go snowboarding for um, a couple of days.
0: Wow. Well. Oh, sounds like I mean yeah. Family, family takes up so much time, but it's it's such a good time. So, um, oh, so it sounds like you don't actually sleep in your classroom. So that's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So before we get to picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me?
1: Um. Yeah, I think I do. I I I have a couple. Well, I'll ask you one question. All right. So, um, just when you think about. Like your hopes for science education, the future. Sometimes, sometimes one of the toughest things about being a teacher is you don't always get to see the change that you hope, you know, would be mm-hmm. happening in this society that we live in. And sometimes you even feel like things are going backwards. So I was just wondering, like, what's your? You get to talk to a lot of people, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe you get a unique perspective on science education that other teachers don't have. So what is your, like your hope for science education or just education in general? And do you think we're, do you think our hopes are going to actually come about soon?
0: Um, oh, come about soon. Oh, that's a, <laughs> depends on how you define soon. Um, I, I would say that, you know, in, in categories, you can generally, you, you pretty much have people who are sort of optimists, uh, you know, or versus pessimists. And I, I certainly am in the optimistic category, in the way I approach life. So, um, it, I, I am optimistic that things are changing in a positive direction in education mm-hmm. in general. Um, and I think that there's a lot of signs for that in a lot of different ways. Um, I think we went down a, uh, a fairly, I, I think education went down a cul-de-sac, uh, the last, you know, two decades where we mm-hmm. were just trying to measure students to death. Um, and there were a lot of people who were like, we're not doing a very good job to our kids cause we're just trying to measure them to death and we're trying to get them, you know, to, to, to get ready for these tests. And some of these tests aren't particularly good. And we're trying to use these tests as this measurement of everything. We're trying to measure all the kids. We're trying to measure all the teachers. Um, and we've gone down that path and I don't know that we're a hundred percent out of it, but I certainly mm-hmm. do feel like the conversation of and the questioning of the te- of these tests has been bubbling up quite a bit, and I don't think the tests are going to ever go away. Um, mm-hmm. I just don't. Uh, the fact is, is that uh, people who make decisions about education um, do not go to classrooms, um, and by and large, <laughs> and by and large, they are uh, people who um, mostly didn't go to public schools. Uh, they went to right. private. They went to private schools. They had top notch private school educations, uh, elementary school educations, private college educations, and uh, they stand up on a hill and they look down and they tell us what's wrong with public school educations when they don't have an inkling of experience in that. With that said, I do think that because education is hyper-local and the funding is hyper-local, there is a lot of pushback locally about what's best for, for kids, and you end up seeing a lot of really good people who in the face of adversity are fighting for kids. And I think that the teacher walkouts that happened uh, last year Mm -hmm. were actually a really strong sign of that. Um, You know, teachers saying, you know, we need a voice and not just, they weren't just walking out and saying, we're underpaid. We're saying our schools are underfunded. And they had very good support. Um, And I think that that, that general direction of both questioning of, you know, how are we assessing our kids and are we assessing kids in a way that is helping them learn and how are we, you know, are we doing good enough for the kids across the country? Those two things have come to to a point where people are having those conversations. And I don't think we were having those conversations a decade ago. And I think now we're having those conversations. So I feel like there's some positive momentum sort of, if you look at sort of that national goal in terms of teaching science, like I taught, in the public schools in the last set of standards we had in massachusetts and massachusetts is held up as this like you know shining place in the hill we have the best you know scores and the best system and da 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 and our last set of science standards they were a bunch of content based memorization churn it out kind of things uh, from 2006 until like this past year and now they're right. they're ngss like Students not need, oh, wow. not only need to know stuff, they need to do stuff. And so, again, is that the positive direction? And to me, that's a yes. Uh, so, I, you know, I think things are good. I know a lot of great teachers all over the country. And so it's hard for me not to go and say, well, I know 10 teachers who, man, they can, they can out-teach me every day of the week. And I think I'm pretty good at what I do. But, man, I could get so much better. And I know a lot of other teachers who, you know, we go to NABT and you see that and you see all the great things they're doing. You you see the questions people are asking and the work they're trying towards and the free resources that HHMI are doing and, you know, the work that, you know, presenters like, you know, you had Bob Kuhn up there down in Georgia. And every time I see Bob post anything about what he's doing with his kids, I'm like, man, he's doing such amazing stuff. Um, I got to <laughs> learn from Bob. Um, I, I think there's a lot of teachers who be inspired by, and I think that the we're not going necessarily 100% down the wrong path, or as I said, down a little cul-de-sac like we were a decade ago. And so I think we're in a bit of a turnaround. So now, could things go off the rails and (laughs) us go down to like 30 days of standardized testing two years from now? Would it shock me? No, but I think overall, I think, In science, we're starting to ask kids to do things and not just memorize things. That's both at the college board level and then at the state level. And I think that's most states have moved that way. And that's really positive. And then generally, the broader conversations about education, I think we're starting to at least question things in a productive way and ask some better questions. And um, I think that turnaround is going to take a little bit longer. But um, I, I feel like things are definitely turning a corner in those regards. So that's sort of the optimistic answer for you. Yeah. So
1: that's I.
0: You know, I'm hope I'm
1: hopeful on some days too, but on some days I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) It just depends on like what's going on. But I worry about the uh, the divide, you know, between the haves and the have-nots because maybe one end is moving in one direction and the other end's moving in the opposite direction, and that's kind of that kind of scares me. Um, And I don't know how to I don't know how to how to fix that either, you know, but sometimes I think maybe I should open my own school and I'll have like a, <laughs> a school for like poor black kids and we'll teach them different languages and do lots of science and math, but you know, I, you know, I don't know how I would do that either. So,
0: yeah, I do think that that's a, a reckoning that we, we have not come to. Um With that said, I also do think that there are a lot of groups, you know, that are, um, they're providing opportunities and resources like, you know, in a lot of places, there are local outreach groups that will provide, you know, materials and lab stuff. And, you know, HHMI, it's free and it's all over the country and it's, it's available. Mm-hmm. I think the underlying thing that is not been dealt with and and we're going to have to come to reckoning at some point with. And I don't know when that is. I don't know if that's going to happen during my career. Um, the fact is, is that um, teaching is really hard. And we don't. Oh my gosh. And, <laughs> it's so and, hard. <laughs> and, and we have a lot of people who want to go into it. Um, but, you know, sort of listening to your story of your first couple of years, you very easily could be somebody who's taking your talents and your passion and doing something else because you were in a school where you got a lot of no's and you got a lot of doors slammed and it was really challenging. And the fact is, you can make a living, you know, if you have a brain in this country. And especially a science mind or a mathematical mind and, you know, skills and you work hard, you can do that and then go home and then not carry a giant pile of papers with you um, and not be at the whim of state legislators. And, and until we make teaching a, an equitable, viable, you know, profession all over the country, that's going to be an issue. And right now that I think when you talk about the divide and the despair, uh, that's something that just needs to get better. Um, right. Because not every kid is getting, even when they get a young, eager professional in the classroom. And I, I personally, when I think back to my first couple of years, you know, I actually made a choice at some point that I was in a school that was under resourced. Um, and it was an underpaying school. And eventually I went, you know what? I have a family and I need to pay the bills and I would like to go to one of those schools where I can be a professional. And I looked at the people and they weren't, I didn't feel like I would grow it to be a professional teacher in that school. And I think in a lot of places, even when you get good young teachers, if you want to be a professional teacher, it's really hard to be in an under-resourced school and become a professional teacher.
1: I, I totally agree. I mean, that that's why I'm not, in public school right now i i feel a little bit guilty about it like sometimes i think maybe the kids that need me like maybe the kids that i'm standing in front of are not the kids that i am i'm meant to be standing in front of so it kind of eats away at me sometimes but i got i do i have to pay my mortgage and i gotta make sure my kids are okay and you know so it's it's rough um i don't yeah
0: I think, I think that's, I mean, I, I teach, you know, I live in a town that's uh, one town north of a, a, you know, medium sized city in Massachusetts. Um, And while the city is, um, you know, it's a a pretty much a, you know, it's an old mill town kind of city. Uh, There's like a whole Mm. bunch of Catholic schools in that town. And there's, Mm. there's like three big public schools and the public schools are predominantly uh, black and Latino. Um, Okay. But the, the city is not. (laughs) right the city is a mixed city the parochial schools the private schools they're mostly white and right you look at that and you say that's a broken system you know um and that's not to say there's not some excellent teachers who teach in some of those buildings there but it is a lot harder to develop into being a professional teacher in those inner city schools um and and when
1: you when you can go internationally and not pay taxes to the U S <laughs> government and you get flight benefits, sometimes it's, that makes it even more challenging. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, and as I said, that's, that's the, that's the thing we got to fix more than anything. We got to make it so that we absolutely need to make every teacher in every school have the ability to grow, to be a professional. And if we can do that, then every student will have an opportunity to have, you know, uh, an opportunity to learn. Um, and that's that's so the, I, that's the gap.
1: So I hope we have some, you know, people in government listening to us <laughs> and top administrators listening to us. And they're going to put some funds aside for that to happen. Yeah.
0: Well, there literally are dozens of people who will listen to this episode, as I like to tell you. Dozens. <laughs> <laughs> OK. All right. So let's get to our picks of the episode. Uh, it looks like you got a podcast. I love podcasts. So uh, what is your pick of the episode? <laughs>
1: Um, uh, I think I put on there Bear Brook. Yep. Uh, that was a really good, I listen to NPR a lot cause I have a long commute to work, but Bear Brook is a, it's a combination of like mystery and science and, you know, murder all wrapped into one. So Ooh. I like a, I like a podcast that makes me want to binge listen. And that one made me want to binge listen.
0: Nice, I'm and it has and
1: that. it has science in there too.
0: I'm gonna have to check that out. I'm a podcast so. junkie, uh, as well. <laughs> L- well. I need another podcast to add to my player, but like, I need a hole in the head. But uh, there's that. Um, and then you also have on here believed and profi- yeah, that was the, and profiting from uh, your DNA. So what are those two things?
1: Uh, profiting from your DNA is a you know how you talked about 23andMe and there's all these companies where you pay them. Um, to analyze your DNA, mm-hmm. well, there is a, a startup company that is going to be also looking at people's DNA, but then you have the opportunity, uh, if somebody you know, wants to use your DNA, you can charge them to use it. So there's a company that's, that's trying to start their own database and actually pay people for um, making their DNA and their sequences available. So I think that's kind of cool, because there's a lot of sites where... I mean, I kind of figure if somebody wants my DNA, they probably could just take it really easily without me knowing. But if I'm going to give it to somebody for free anyways, it would be cool if I could profit from it too. All
0: right. That sounds, those and are some um, picks. Yeah. And the Believed?
1: Believed is about, uh, you know, all the the, the gymnast and uh, what is his name? The guy who was...
0: Oh, the guy from Michigan. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Well, anyways. The, I mean, that story is a lot easier than
1: I thought it was. So.
0: Larry Nasser.
1: Yes, he, yes. It just talks about how he got away with what he got away with, and nowadays with um, I don't know. I just think as teachers we need to pay attention to students, and sometimes we we can't imagine that we live in a society where these things could happen, but they do happen, and so we have to pay attention to our students, and we have to listen to them, and um, you know, and understand that some of the things that kids face when they're out off campus or even maybe on campus in some places, it, they could have a profound impact on their lives. And so hopefully the voices of women are going to be taken seriously in the future. I think that's one that's worth listening to.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I've heard the, the promos for that. And um, it's one of, one of those ones I have, I have flagged. I think that is definitely a, um, as dark and as awful as that is, that's one to listen back to back to back kind of episodes yeah. yeah all right well i'm gonna go a different direction with my pick and um, it's something i heard actually on science friday uh, a couple weeks ago and it's called uh, flu near you um, and it's a volunteer citizen science project where individuals can contribute to their community's health um, and help track the flu across the country and literally it is a website you click on and it's kind of like how are you feeling today do you have oh. any symptoms and where are you And you plug it in and they add it to their citizen science database. And uh, when you click on it, you can go to different places. So, uh, you know, here it is where, you know, end of um, November when this is being recorded. Um, And so I could open this up. And as it opens up, I can scroll down to the map and um, look and you can actually see what's going on in your area. So is it an area where a lot of people are feeling, you know, a feel in the flu? Um, you know, basically you click, am I feeling okay or am I not feeling okay? And then you get to see the map where you are and they give you some information. Um, but you you are able to join in and give them a little feedback and they map it out um, for everybody who visits this website. So when I look at here, oh, there's a bunch of people in the uh, in the Phoenix, Arizona area here. That are reporting. Oh some, wow! That are reporting flu-like symptoms. Two point five percent of people who are reporting. Uh, Two point oh five percent are reporting flu-like symptoms right now, um, and there are some of those people in the Phoenix, Arizona area. As I pull the map up, so um, and I do know <laughs> a couple cool. couple of teachers who've already gotten the flu, um, and I feel bad for them because I know that um, it's it's very early in the year, and so I had my flu vaccine already, um, but I know a lot of people hadn't gotten them yet. And they have already gotten sick. It seems like the flu um, has come out a little early this year. So, um, yeah, and it's it's you can see them all over the place. And there's uh, even people down in Puerto Rico and there's people up in Alaska and out in Hawaii who've done it. And it's a, it's a pretty cool interactive map. And I'm, I'm curious to see how this goes um, as we move forward. But I know I'm going to be teaching about vaccines in the next couple of weeks. Um, and so I may bring this up with my students.
1: So, yeah, I'll definitely share this with my students as well. This is a cool site.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you again for joining me, Tanea. It's been a great conversation. We went like all over the place um, (laughs) on this one. I don't know that we solved any problems, but we talked about a lot of problems. Um, uh (laughs) And so hopefully this will help you go forward optimistically. Um, I feel feel very well informed and very reflective now, but I don't know if I can solve anything yet. So and,
1: yeah. I, and we're thinking, we're thinking though, which is what teachers should be doing. So we're constantly challenging ourselves.
0: Yeah. All right. Let me give my show credits. Uh, people can support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, supporters get early releases of my episodes. Uh, they also get invited into a Slack community with uh, the members of John Darko's uh, Patreons and David Kanufki's music on this episode are provided by ex magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can get show notes in addition to on my Patreon page at lifeoftheschool.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew or at life of the school. You have a Twitter as well, don't you?
1: Uh, I do. Don't ask me what the Twitter account thing is, though. (laughs) I'm not very, um, you know, I'm old, so sorry.
0: I'm old too, but I'll I'm old. will send it to you. I'm old in Twitter. I actually, <laughs> uh, I actually followed you this week. So I will put your Twitter in the show notes uh, when I go to put together my show notes. So uh, you can follow Tanea as well. And then, um, and then you, you'll get like five or six extra followers and uh, I'll tag you in, in there and uh, you won't ever see them because you don't go to Twitter. But um, I put out my episodes on Twitter. So um, actually a lot of my listens come from Twitter. So uh, that's one of the reasons I keep, I keep that active that account active so well thank you again for joining me and i will talk to everybody soon